Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I am your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Drs. Utica Radaiki and Elizabeth Hausenfeld, who will be discussing their recent work predicting vasovagal reactions to a virtual blood donation using facial image analysis. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi. 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 Dr. Rodekaiti, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, yes. So uh, I'm a PhD candidate, actually. So one year, <laughs> hopefully, before I become a doctor. Uh, my name is Yudta Rodakaite, and uh, as I said, I'm a PhD candidate at Tilbo University, uh, Department of Cognitive Science and Artificial Intelligence, and Sanquin National Blood Bank in the Netherlands. Thank you. Dr. Hassenfeld, will you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. So first, congrats on saying my name so well. So indeed, uh, I'm Elisabeth Heisenfeld. Uh, um, I am the supervisor of uh, Judita. Um, I am assistant professor at the Cognitive Science and Artificial Intelligence Department at Tilburg University in the Netherlands, and also uh, a PI of donor cognition at the Department of Donor Medicine Research at Sanquin, uh, also the Netherlands. Well, we're really excited you're both here with us. Uh, this paper is a little different for us average blood bankers, um, but it was incredibly interesting. Could you summarize your study for our listeners? Yeah. Oh, thank you for the um, for the compliments. Um, so actually, I think I will uh, give the the idea of the sum, uh, the summary to Judita because it's really her first paper as a PhD student. So I'm really proud of her, uh, and I can imagine it's a very different paper than what you're used to. And um, as you know, yeah, as you heard, we are working at the Cognitive Science and Artificial Intelligence Department, and that's really what this paper, uh, yeah, came from. So we were really interested in how. Uh, and if we could predict um, or see any um, unconscious, very automatic uh, processes or uh, physical uh, responses in donors, um, and this is uh, this study specifically is um, a subproject of our big project, and the big project is called the Faint uh, Project, and Faint stands for Facial Infrared Thermal Imaging in the Prevention of Needle-Induced Fainting. So, in our main aim. Uh, of this overarching project is developing an uh, artificial intelligence solution that can um, really measure or predict who is at risk of experiencing vasovagal reactions uh, in a very early stage. Um, so, Judita, maybe you want to summarize yeah. your paper? Yes, indeed. So, just uh, add to what Elizabeth already said. So, People with needle fear uh, experience not only anxiety and stress, but also so-called vasovagal reactions, which includes being nauseous, dizzy, uh, sweating. Uh, also, we can observe some paler changes in the face or in severe cases, fainting or vomiting and uh, similar responses. So there are lots of known risk factors such as gender, younger age, uh, BMI. However, we don't have... Um, anything that would measure this response over time. So it means that if we can detect uh, these vasovagal reactions in real life environment, real time, and also monitor it over time. So if in order to achieve that, then we have to rely on some uh, physiological measurements. And uh, one of those measurements is infrared thermal imaging camera, which we used in our study to observe uh, temperature fluctuations in the facial areas. 
So we uh, selected six facial areas based on previous studies. And then we uh, measured uh, temperature changes over time. Uh, while uh, people, uh, students actually in our study were exposed to simulated blood donation. And uh, uh, the main uh, finding um, is that indeed we can, uh, we did find associated uh, association between vasovagal uh, reactions and these changes uh, in the face. Especially one of the target areas is uh, area below the nose uh, that potentially could be a, a target for other studies uh, that we are also like doing right now uh, in order to automatically detect, detect the sphere and vasovagal reactions and also monitor it over time uh, that we could later on use for uh, solutions for people with needle fear and those who experience vasovagal reactions. How did you come up with the idea for this study? Um, well, this idea actually... Um came to mind a few years ago when I, as a neuroscientist, uh, started working at Sanguin, uh, the blood bank. And one of the first things I did was um, spend a few days at a blood collection center just to talk to donors and to see, you know, all the things that happened. And um, I had been given basically um, a, a carte blanche on what I wanted to study within the blood bank. And this is where I saw donors actually faint. Um, and I thought that this was really sad, but also really interesting from a neuroscientific point of view, um, because you, you you could really see that you were talking, you know, you could be talking to a donor and um, y you could see maybe some weird things going on, you know, in their face. Maybe they looked a bit scared or, or tense or they, you know, they would start to sweat and, and you would ask them, right? Like, hey, how are you doing? Um, are you doing fine? Are you maybe nervous? And and they would basically always say, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm okay, nothing to worry about. And then they might just faint. Um, and this, yeah, I thought this was so strange because I, of course, I've heard of people fainting because they lost half a liter of blood. Um, but this occurred um, really just already a couple of times within the two or three days that I was uh, at the blood collection center. And it happened at the time that the needle was going in or when the, you know, the nurse or the donor assistant was preparing the needle insertion. Um, so this is basically where this idea came to mind. And I started um, looking into the literature, what was known about this problem and what was being done to, to help people prevent this. And this is where I noticed a gap in our existing knowledge, where a lot of the interventions that are being used at blood collection centers right now are, for example, aimed at minimizing things like the drop in blood pressure, all things that can happen, again, after the donation. Um, but they also saw that people started, you know, reported donors having uh, nerves or being scared. And I saw that needle fear was a huge problem in healthcare in general. And this is where I made the link myself with hey, you know, neurological processes having to do with these, uh, with fear and anxiety um, can actually be the reason that people experience these vasovagal reactions, um, you know, through the brain processes that are really interconnected in, in, in that way. And that's where I figured I wanted to try and help these people uh, specifically. So people that in, anticip uh, in anticipation of the blood donation were 
experiencing problems, whether they were emotional or uh, or physical. And from that point on, I I I was used actually to um, use neuropsychophysiological techniques such as EEG, you know, brainwave measurements or fMRI. But these are of course not very easy to apply in a real healthcare situation. And this is how I. Um, found that actually infrared thermal imaging might be a very nice way to measure these very early signals uh, before people were even, you know, um, aware of them. So this is sort of how it all came together, um, where I wanted to really focus on the anticipatory periods and finding out if I could help people overcome their needle fear of vasovagal reactions uh, before they escalated and before they they happened, and this is actually the first study, um, yeah, in the in that overarching project. Describe the facial infrared thermal imaging. What was it originally developed for, and what else is it used for? Yeah, so actually, this is a technique that is often used in, for example, construction. Uh, so you can uh, point it. I mean, it's basically a camera, right? It's a camera. It looks like a regular camera. You can hold it in your hands and people can use it to look at a building and see if there's any um, uh, leaks, if temperature goes out anywhere, if there has to be some uh, insulation uh, happening. Um, but a few years ago, people started to use this technique for this aim, to study uh, human responses. Um, and uh, so there were already a few articles that looked at like, hey, this technique can be used to measure actually human responses. And what you can see in this infrared thermal imaging um, uh, data is, for example, if your blood draws away from your face, if you start to sweat, of course, you can see... Um, you know, your facial expressions uh, as well. You can measure heartbeats um, so, and respiration. So this is actually a very nice technique that can, in a non-contactless way, non-invasively, measure all these psychophysiological symptoms that you don't need electrodes for anymore as what you used to um, need before. But I think this started out basically as a technique to, um, yeah, for like building and construction, as far as I know. Yes, yes. And uh, now it's used even for children to measure the stress level or for uh, adults and um, yeah, emotional states uh, and similar things. Interesting. Yeah. Or for night cameras, I guess it was used. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Even now during the COVID, it's used for, let's say, measuring the temperature. It's also based on uh, yeah. infrared. Oh, like the thermometers they point at your forehead? Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. So can you so you used a virtual blood donation in this experiment? Can you explain that to our listeners? Um, yeah. So um, actually, we also are doing the study with actual blood donors, but that study is yet to be published. So we were looking for a way that we can sort of um, make people feel like they were in a blood donation scenario without having to actually put needles into them because both Judith and I are not allowed to do that uh, in real life. So what we use is what we call um, sort of a video-based version of a, a classic neuropsychological experiment called the rubber arm illusion. And the rubber arm illusion is a way that we can basically trick the brain into believing that a rubber arm, or in our case, an arm on a video screen, is your own arm. And we do this by putting um, basically your right arm behind a laptop 
screen. And what you see on the screen is also an arm that sort of looks like now it is uh, coming out of your own body. And we put a little cloth over your shoulder. So obviously it's very clear. You know you're looking at a computer screen and you're not looking at your own arm. But then we do something crucial. And uh, Judith did this with all the students. Um, in the video, uh, at some point, someone is brushing with a brush over the arm in the video. And if you mimic that brushing uh, sensation on someone's real arm, basically what happens is you see an arm being stroked on the laptop screen. And you feel the exact same thing in your own arm. And now, because your brain sees and feels the exact same thing, it starts to incorporate this fake arm, this virtual arm, as if it is your own arm. And even though you know consciously that, of course, this is an arm on the video screen, your brain will respond the same way to this arm uh, as it would to your regular arm. And then uh, the blood donation happens on this arm uh, in the video. And that gives the sensation as if you are, uh, yeah, actually in the blood donation scenario. Yeah. And one important thing that we have uh, two conditions. So one is synchronous. So when you see uh, what is happening in the video and what you feel at your own hand at the same time, then this illusion uh, happens, what Elizabeth described. And uh, another condition is asynchronous condition when you actually... Uh, see what is happening on the screen, but on your hand, you feel the same sensations uh, with some delay. So when, uh, at least from other researchers, we know that it breaks the illusion. So it's basically a, a testing condition that you know that you, your illusion works or it doesn't. And this sounds really strange. And a lot of people have said, oh, I don't believe this really works. And we tried it on so many colleagues and interested people and everybody completely freaks out because it works really well. Yes, indeed. And uh, this is so the surprising thing is that even for asynchronous condition, it worked quite well for people, especially those who were uh, reported that they were fe uh, fearful of needles or they didn't like needles. So, uh, yeah, that was a surprising thing. And uh, uh, we tried also like the same rubber hand illusion in other settings. Um, so, yeah, it always worked. And some responses were really like severe responses. Some people started crying or uh, they tried to turn away uh, wow. the video. Yeah, so that was a pretty strong response. And that was one of the most surprising things for me. That's one of my questions is what surprised you. But that is very surprising that people take that much ownership. So you did mention that the synchronous and asynchronous both took ownership and that was not what was planned or uh, expected, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Did you specifically recruit subjects who reported a needle fear? No, no, we are actually not even allowed to do this. At the university, we can only put up the study on um, like an online participant uh, recruitment uh, system. And students can uh, decide on which study to participate in uh, themselves. They, of course, a lot of options uh, available. And we have to um, yeah, really tell about the study, what it is about up front. So we were actually afraid that we would not get anyone with needle fear to participate in the study. Um, but, uh, but so no, it, it was basically just, um, anyone who wanted to participate uh, and signed up, uh, did participate. Yes. We specified that, uh, we don't use actual needles. There is no actual blood. So, uh, 
yeah, that was nice that at least some people who say that they were uh, scared of needles and what they showed up. But uh, definitely that could be quite biased that those people who have like really um, a high fear that they didn't even sign up for the study. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that. I thought you would want to get those people, but you're right. My brother has a severe needle phobia, and if he had seen there was even needles on the sheet of paper, he wouldn't have come in. So yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and we notice a lot. So our study has been getting a lot of attention in the Netherlands uh, as well in the popular media. And we get so many emails from people saying, you know, I cannot even read your article in the newspaper because they put a needle picture next to it or you know i i've, I've been afraid to watch the news uh because every news you know there is it's about COVID, and immediately they put needles the needle in it picture, and, yeah yeah it's true he he feels the same way believe me he did not enjoy those pictures either i completely believe that yeah so what mitigation measures might a donor center take when an imaging algorithm identifies a donor with a possible impending vasovagal reaction? Like how do you first how do you picture this being used in the future? Oh yeah, this is a very good point. Um, so we are actually already um, developing uh, a solution and it's in the form of a game. And you can already download it if you want to try it. It's in the, uh, available on the Apple stores and the, the Android Play stores. Uh, so we are developing a game. Uh, we call it AINAR, uh, A-I-N-A-R. Uh, it's again an acronym because researchers love acronyms and it stands for uh, artificial intelligence uh, for needle anxiety reduction. And um, so this is this is basically the end product I had in mind when I started the whole project. Because as you mentioned, just being able to specify or to see who is at risk of experience of vasovagal reaction is not really useful because we know that... Um, you know, just this knowledge is not enough. Maybe you recognize this with your brother. He knows he's scared of needles, but that knowledge does not help him in any way, probably, to uh, control these uh, adverse reactions. So the algorithm that we are um, uh, developing right now is being implemented in this uh, in this game. So I will try to explain this nicely and shortly. So I hope uh, I will do this, uh, this correctly. Um, so Einar is a, a game and it works on biofeedback. So if you download the game, you will see that the game itself is very uh, innocent. There's not going to be any needles involved, but basically you're a cute little avatar that is rolling through hills and you have to uh, jump and uh, eat insects. Uh, and by, you know, you have to carefully time all your jumps and then you get in a really nice flow and you roll through all kinds of nice uh, environments. Now, of course, you might then ask, what does this have to do with needle fear? Well, there is one aspect in the game, which is the weather that is responding directly to you. So our algorithm is basically looking at your face through the selfie camera of your phone. Um, and by looking at all these um, uh, facial responses, among one of them is, uh, for example, these facial uh, temperature patterns, which your phone can also see by looking at color uh, changes in your in your skin. Um, but you know, there might also be other indications, such as facial expression, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, the fun part of algorithms is that um, it's often 
yeah, it can take all these things into account. But um, but I digress. So what happens? You as a player get the task that you have to make sure that the weather stays nice and sunny. Now, what happens if the algorithm is picking up very early uh, signs uh, or risks of you becoming scared or maybe uh, the, the precursors to vasovagal reactions, the weather will start to change. It might start to rain or it might start to snow in severe cases. Now, this is where the magic happens. If it starts to rain or if it starts to snow, you as a player have to change the weather back to sunny again. And we are not going to tell you how, um, because basically what's happening is these unconscious neurological processes that you don't have any conscious control over, um, you know, they are being visualized for you. And you are just going to have to find out how you can turn that back, how you can stop these signals of fear and, uh, and fainting. And I can only explain this in words, but these are very un, yeah, automatic, unconscious processes. But for example, maybe Yara, you think like, okay, I will think about my last holiday and I picture myself on the beach with a cocktail or climbing in the mountains or whatever is your happy place. Now, if this works for you in turning uh, back all these the, these uh, unconscious processes, you can see that the weather is changing and that the sun starts to shine again. Um, maybe I will try a mindfulness exercise um, I, or I try to watch my breathing um, and I can immediately see if it works or not. So maybe I'm trying this for a bit and it still is raining or it starts to snow. That means I have to try something else. And this is a... Um, yeah, this is called biofeedback, and this is a very uh, old, very well-known and studied uh, neurological um, technique. And it basically means that just because you see how you are doing, you can learn how to control it. And you cannot do it very consciously. I can ask you how you did it, and you might have words for it, but it's basically a process that happens deep into your brain that you don't have that much control over. But your brain is very responsive to these, uh, to the positive feedback that you get if something works. Um, so that is how we are actually using this algorithm. And we foresee that we ask donors or other people that need anything having to do with needles, that they play this in a waiting room. Uh, it's just a nice game. It's very entertaining. And... It helps you to stay calm, cool, collected, and hopefully, this um, your fear and uh, you know vasovagal reactions will never escalate to the point that you start you know vomiting or fainting. So that's basically what we do. That's fascinating, and it's taking all of my willpower not to pick up my phone and download that game right now. So I'm just gonna I'll look at it afterwards. But that's amazing. Yeah. Please look at it. It's still an early version, so it's a working proto. Yeah, it's an almost working prototype. So we are really almost have the final algorithm uh, available. So we're implementing it as we go, and it, it still likes a menu, for example, or instructions. But you can play it and also let us know what you you think about yeah, it. Yeah, I love it. So is the idea of the faint study, which this study we're talking about today is part of moving towards using the game and using these type of algorithms for future use. Is that what the faint study is going to be or is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. 
Now I'm all off because I got so excited about the game. Right. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, exciting. So can, <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. We're actually not only, of course, um, um, actually, Judita and I, uh, together with someone else, we founded a startup uh, around this game. Uh, and it's partnered by both Sanquin and uh, the university. Uh, and and yeah, we are definitely already with the first, um, yeah, some uh, like a hospital in the Netherlands and a uh, big or a lab organization that takes care of a lot of blood draws in the Netherlands. And of course, with Sanquin, we're already testing the game with uh, donors and patients, asking their feedback. And once we have the alg- algorithm implemented to such an extent that we are happy with it, we are going to test the efficacy, um, of course. Yes. So this is definitely like one of the uh, first steps that we made the study that uh, uh, got published. So uh, because it's important to identify like some targets or like what is the best way to for algorithm to actually learn uh, uh, these features like facial features that could help us to identify when these vasovagal reactions start at the earliest stage as possible. Right, because we want to uh, give this feedback to people uh, as early as possible. Because knowing from our res- uh, uh, research that uh, the stress level is gradually increasing, so it's important for us to identify the smallest changes possible, and uh, then uh, feed it to our algorithm that it would be able to catch those uh, small changes. So ideally, that would happen just with smartphone camera. Uh, but the thermal imaging is also like it was one of the first steps that we tried. Uh, so yeah, our studies are also upcoming. So uh, you will know more. But this is like the first step. Excellent. So the idea is they would play the game, like Elizabeth Elizabeth said, in the waiting room, and figure out. You know, I can calm myself and maybe use that same skill in the donation chair. Um, yeah, it could be uh, indeed for people that um, uh, really experience a surge uh, in um, yeah in these processes at in the donation chair. But we know from uh, actually previous studies we ran at Sanquin uh, from uh, Hogerwerf, another fun Dutch name, that we measured um, physiological, psychological, and hormonal stress responses uh, during a whole blood donation procedure from beginning to end. And uh, you could very clearly see that both physical and, and hormonal and, and psychological stress already starts the moment that people come in. And there it starts to rise and rise and rise and rise. And it actually peaks the moment that um, someone is in this donation chair um, at the needle insertion. So we figured like, if we can disrupt this, this rising stress, then hopefully people will n- even feel good in the donation chair itself, or hopefully they will be more susceptible um, and more open to, of course, all the social support and the distraction and the nice things that all the donor assistants provide um, the donor. And this is what we hear both from nurses or doctors and donor assistants that sometimes, you know, by the time that they get eye to eye with a donor or patient, they can already see like, oh no, you know, oh, this person is already on the verge of fainting or vomiting or whatever. And then they try this. They try to, to be kind, to distract, to support, to, to comfort, but it doesn't take, it doesn't take anymore because someone is just not able to really, um, you know, incorporate it and to call uh, him or herself down. So our aim is hopefully 
to get a donor or a patient in a calm state into the arms of the nurse who then can have a pleasant uh, interaction uh, with this person during the needle uh, insertion. Yeah, I remember from some interviews that people uh, who have this needle fear uh, used to say, oh, I get nervous even before, like a few days before I know that I have to go to the doctor. So, uh, yeah, it, it definitely starts uh, way before the actual blood draw. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I do therapeutic apheresis, and I can definitely tell when a patient is nervous before we start. And I always keep an eye mm -hmm. on them because I'm afraid they're going to pass out or yeah. vomit or that type of thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, you try to distract them, but by the point you realize they're nervous, it's usually, they're usually too far gone. You can't get them yes. back at that point. Exactly. And that's exactly the point. And, you know, for, from a neurological stand, from my neuro neurological point of view, this made total sense. So my whole PhD was about measuring emotional reactions in, uh, in people without asking them because people are notoriously bad at reporting these type of signals before they escalate. So by the time you see it um, and by the time a patient can report it, like you said, it's already too late. And what uh, this, these measurements can do is we can measure it before people can report it and before you can see it with uh, the naked eye. Um, and that's exactly what the aim of this whole project was, to make sure that people don't get to that point. And that's why we came up with this complicated way of using artificial intelligence and uh, images and neurofeedback-based games, because that's basically what you need uh, in order to have people get control over processes they don't feel. I hope so, that makes sense. <laughs> it does, it does. So when you did this study, I assume that conditions were very controlled because the temperature changes between their cheeks and underneath their nose, it was very small amount of change, usually less than one degree Celsius. So mm -hmm. in the real world where there might be air conditioning blowing on them or a sunbeam coming in, do you think mm -hmm. the real world would disturb some of these findings? Hi, well, we know for sure that it doesn't really. Um, maybe Judith can get into the details of it. Uh, but we are almost ending. Uh, yeah, like I said, we have some articles coming up. And we did the same study with actual blood donors uh, at Sanquin. Um, so we collected data from blood donors at three different locations uh, in the Netherlands. And we followed them throughout the blood donation procedure with both an infrared thermal imaging camera and just a regular um, digital camera. So from start to finish, uh, we just had donors do whatever they did regularly as if we weren't there. So they could do what they wanted. They could, uh, um, and we just filmed them with these two cameras. And at some stages during the donation procedure, we did ask them to quickly self-report on, on levels of emotional and uh, physical uh, signs of, of EVR. But for the rest, we just measured them. So we didn't control for anything like movement or, you know, sunlight or whatever, uh, temperature outside uh, or inside. Um, but we did have to uh, stay in just for a little bit in case they came out of a very cold, you know, Dutch winter that they could acclimatize to the, uh, the temperature of the room at that point. Um, but this is the data that we are really building our algorithm on, uh, both on the infrared thermal data and on the regular video data. And we can actually quite accurately predict who will experience a vasovagal reaction during the donation based on imaging in the waiting room of just plain old donations as they happen. 
Yes, and, and one more thing to address that uh, in general, these are physiological changes. So we wouldn't expect that the temperature uh, difference, well, it, it is very small if you look at it uh, from like, yeah, just one degree. But if you look from physiological changes, it's, it's, it's pretty high. Uh, mm -hmm. If you have like one degree change and something that usually is quite stable. And uh, ideally, it's not that much about the uh, one change or like how much change it is in, in degree or not. But it's more about just recognizing uh, facial features and like uh, anything that could help actually to build a bigger data set and then use this for uh, deep learning. So in this current study, we used um, mixed uh, uh, effect model, um, basically for this uh, uh, prediction. But uh, ideally, we would like to use deep learning. So that's why we are collecting like much bigger data set. And if we, well, we already replicated our results with donors, but it's like, as Elizabeth said, in real life environment. But uh, ideally, we would like to use... Uh, if at all, this thermal uh, data like as additional feature rather than just one measurement per se. Yeah, and and this is why um, actually as a you know as a neuroscientist, I really I moved to a, um, a department with artificial intelligence knowledge, and why I recruited uh, Judita with her knowledge in artificial intelligence because these te techniques are uniquely able to pick up on these very small uh, and complicated changes um, that would be very hard to to get out of, um, to get yeah manually. So you can really um, just input the, the videos, just the images, and uh, AI will be able to extract which yeah, features, as we call them, uh, and it can be a whole bunch of them, can predict uh, these vasovagal uh, reactions. So that's really a huge benefit of these uh, techniques. Other than the self-reported symptoms the donors reported, or I guess not the donors, the subjects who were watching the rubber arm illusion, did you do any objective monitoring like heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, temperature, not temperature, hold on, I'm going to start that yeah. over again. Other than self-reported symptoms, were the facial images correlated with objective data, such as continual monitoring of heart rate, respiratory rate, or blood pressure? That's a very painful question, Yara, uh, because we actually... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, we had this all panned out. We wanted to um, uh, do this, the same, exactly the same study with these uh, psychophysiological measurements, uh, and then the pandemic happened. So we were never able to do this yet, but we will very soon. <laughs> Which goes to my next question. Um, so you commented in the paper that the pandemic did cut short your study. So it sounds like part of the plan was to do objective monitoring of physiologic signs. Were there other things you had to change because of the pandemic? Um, yeah, the number of participants, mostly. Yes, <laughs> yes that was uh, limited size. And uh, definitely we couldn't include... Uh, for example, heart rate, respiratory signal, uh, which we, well, we assume that it would be highly correlated with our findings because we found that the area below the nose uh, is the one that is highly associated with the vasovagal uh, response. And then, well, it's usually a target for monitoring breathing patterns. But unfortunately, yeah, we couldn't include it. And I think that would uh, 
greatly benefit the future research if we can actually include and see like how it is uh, correlated if it at all. Yeah, so we we have this uh, on the planning for for this year. So it's only recently that we were able to even start planning um, studies again with actual participants. Uh, as you can imagine, these type of studies where people would be very close to each other. So the participants and Judita uh, were basically banned for a few years during the pandemic, unfortunately. Yeah, the pandemic did not help anybody in any way. <laughs> Well, no, it didn't for for this study, but um, it actually did help us in in a strange way because when I came up with this project a few years ago, um, it it wasn't really well known uh, outside blood donation uh, settings that needle fear and vasovagal reactions were actually such a big problem, oh. and and yeah, so with the, you know, the arrival of the vaccinations. Yeah. This really put a spotlight uh, on this, um, you know, how completely disruptive needle fear and, and of course, the vasovagal reactions can be for people's, be, you know, health behaviors. So in that sense, it was really helpful um, yeah. to us, uh, especially in, you know, developing the the game and, and gaining some, some grants and support from people who then saw like, okay, such a game is really needed. So uh, in, in, in that sense, the pandemic helped, but in the data collection sense, it was rubbish. <laughs> so in this, you did not report the race um, of the, of your participants. And although facial recognition is different than thermal imaging, there's been a lot in the news about facial recognition technology processing faces of different races differently. So how mm -hmm. diverse was your study population and do you think race would play into the effectiveness of this technology? Yeah, it's a very good question and something that we are really thinking about uh, a lot. So we are actually not allowed to ask for race, but yeah, I know that um, yeah, there were just a few. Yes, I'm a sure, few. Just a few people, um, at least who are brown skinned. Um, so yeah, this was just a, a Dutch uh, student population. So they're not only Dutch, but also uh, also international. But another thing uh, that is really a benefit of this infrared thermal imaging technique is that it's unrelated to skin tone because it just looks at warmth. Uh, so that's a great benefit of using the infrared thermal imaging data. Of course, now we are also we are really developing the algorithm on the regular video uh, data, and we are um, well worried is not we are sensitive to the fact that this could cause uh, problems, um, especially because the Dutch donor population is very white. Uh, we have a, a great lack of people with sub-Saharan African backgrounds, uh, for example. Um, so there we don't have a lot of diversity in our donor uh, data set for sure. So actually what we are planning um, is that if we are ready to uh, redo this study um, with the psychophysiological measurements like heart rate and respiration added, is that we want to open it up to the public and really uh, call for uh, people with other skin tones to participate. So we really hope that we can get as diverse a, a population as possible to study whether uh, skin tones is a problem. Now, having said that, um, what we are actually doing is you look at changes within a person, so not between people. Um, 
so hopefully we will be able to see changes no matter what you know the starting color is um, uh, of any given uh, participant and there are actually also um, two papers that looked at um, using these type of uh, skin tone uh, images uh, to detect emotions and they have developed a way that is um, able to look at changes in skin color that are indicative of emotion, which is independent of skin tone. So I really have great hope that we can make this um, hopefully non-biased <laughs> AI, uh, but we are also really going to work hard on making sure that, uh, that this is an inclusive uh, solution. But I don't know yet for sure. So at the end of the day, did your study findings surprise you or is this what you expected? That's a good question. They surprised me actually a little bit because um, they don't one-on-one um, -on -one correlate with the findings from uh, really emotion uh, research using these techniques. Um, for example, showing that uh, the nose tip um, gets very cold if you startle people. Um, on the other hand, I was not that surprised because we also know that needle fear is such a specific thing and that the vasovagal reactions you get from needles, blood and injuries are also so specific that, you know, you don't get this response from anything else. So, um, yeah, we really realized early on that we could not use existing databases, you know, um, showing... Um, regular, you know, basic emotions like fear and, and anger to train an algorithm for this purpose and that we really needed to collect our own data um, just because needle fear is so weird and, and specific. Um, so, and uh, yeah, and to be honest, I'm just relieved that we could do it because <laughs> a few years ago, people thought I was crazy when I uh, suggested this project. <laughs> yeah, but I think that uh, in general, since there are lots of previous studies that actually show that uh, this area is related to stress response or anxiety, like, I mean, nose area and below the nose region. Uh, so that was in line of the previous findings, actually. Um, because uh, if you look at the donor research, also there are like some techniques that uh, target like this hyperventilation and like anxiety response. And uh, it, it is related with changes in uh breathing pattern of course like we couldn't directly correlate it with uh, any objective measurement that actually measures the breathing but uh, uh, from the previous study it, it seems that this could be the case that's why we found this uh, association between like the, this area below the nose and um anxiety yes, and yeah so, so that part was not that part was not um unexpected um but i what we also, I think, clearly find, and also in the upcoming studies, is that just looking at respiration is not uh, enough. Um, and that's what people see also. So just measuring uh, respiration or uh, creating interventions that target uh, respirations are not enough. And that's why it's nice that, you know, using these type of techniques, you can add a lot more data and a lot more information than merely respiration or merely heart rate. Um, so I think that is... Uh, uh, really cool but you know to be honest this this is a really unique study it hasn't been done before so we weren't exactly sure what to what to expect looking back over the whole study what do you think was the most difficult part there were so many difficult parts um 
So one yeah, difficult yeah, part, say. like one technical difficult part, is that actually, um, it's although there are some studies that uh, also investigate this uh, thermal change, but uh, honestly, it's it's really difficult to have like techniques for thermal imaging to pre-process the data. So we spend a lot of time to actually figure out how to pre-process it in the right way because we have lots of uh, let's say algorithms that detect facial landmarks on uh, RGB uh, data, but uh, all those algorithms fail completely on thermal data. So actually, there are not that many examples or not that many um, great tools to actually do like um, well tracking of people's faces over time, especially in the real uh, real life environment, because we also allowed people uh, who were in our study to well move naturally so that was a really difficult part like one really difficult technical part uh, and i think uh, yeah elizabeth could also mention uh, uh, our difficult parts more like in perhaps in in collecting the data or also this COVID thing and similar yeah no i think to be honest you coined it exactly right because um and and this really goes to show how great uh judita is um, because she entered this project, uh, you know, with a supervisor who's basically a crazy neuroscientist, and uh, she could <laughs> she could not use anything. She had to build everything from scratch. And if you read it now in a paper, it sounds easy or logical, but she had to develop and test and develop and test and develop and test everything um, basically from scratch uh, the whole time and. Um, so that's that's that was really uh, challenging, and um, I'm really pleased um, that we made such uh, progress not only in this study but hopefully also in the in the future uh, studies. But that was definitely challenging, you know, making something that was not out there yet. So we talked a little bit about the faint study and the other work you all are doing, but what's next on the horizon? So. Oh, there's so much uh, happening uh, happening next. So, of course, we are really, really excited about uh, the other uh, results that we get now um, based on the whole uh, donor data set. So um, we are looking at ways, you know, can we predict who will faint during the donation based on, you know, the measurements we do in the waiting room can, of course, because the game wants to see how you're doing. So to what extent can we really accurately read how you are doing um, and implement this in the game? Oh man, there, there we go to so many challenges as well, because we are making this way new biofeedback loop in a game based on images that no one's really done before. So that was is a whole challenging thing uh, in itself also. Um, we're really excited to start testing um, the efficacy of the game soon. And also if anyone is listening and thinking, oh, I would love to help with this. I would I would love to give this to my patients or donor population and, and help in the co-development of this game. Please shoot me an email. Um, because of course that's what we are doing it for. We, we really want to help people conquer, conquer their needle fear and, uh, and, and fainting uh, responses. Um, also, yeah, we have been looking at doing this study, like we said before, with the psychophysiology. Um, so we really hope we can do that uh, uh, this year, and uh, especially by opening it up to the public, so not not only having students do this. Um, 
so yeah, and and actually we're really hoping that we can get some investments to really uh, further develop the game to make it a real product so we can help everybody worldwide with their with their needle fear. I think that is a really great cause because it's much more prevalent. And I do think the COVID pandemic revealed how many people have really severe needle phobia. So I congratulate you on your work. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show. Thank you to Utica and Elizabeth for joining us for a really fascinating discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusion's monthly podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.